0: Welcome to Cynical Talk. This is a weekly roundup between your co-hosts, myself, Thomas Brancaso,
1: and myself, George Shaft,
0: where we will be exploring a variety of topics loosely related to MI Cynic, and just seeing what happens, it's going to be a more laid-back approach to the MI Cynic Standard episodes, and it is a chance for me and George to sound off a little bit more on our own hot takes on our own opinions and the beauty of conversation. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cynical Talk. This is your co-host, Thomas Brancasse.
1: And I am, of course, also here, George Shaft.
0: And you, the listeners, are here with us. And today we are going to be discussing Hong Kong. And that is partly because, of course, the last episode was on Taiwan and we thought it would be fitting to, to speak about the other city um, that China has its eyes on. Of course, the situation in Hong Kong is, is different and we'll go into that in a second. Um, but we thought we'd, we'd also mention Hong Kong because it's, um, it ties into the, the previous discussion of Taiwan. And um, there is some troubling news coming from Hong Kong as well, isn't there, George?
1: Well, I had the horrifying realization at the end of the last one that we'd somehow managed to talk to Taiwan for an hour without mentioning Hong Kong once. So, only appropriate to bring it up. It, it links in because the, there's an idea, or there was for the longest time an idea in Taiwan that it could join in China under the system that it was using. In Hong Kong since the 1990s, the One China, Two Systems concept, which we will discuss much more throughout this podcast.
0: Yeah, most certainly, um, it it does tie into to the system, and of course, it it ties in 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 the most obvious way because China wants to use the example of its its most recent um, what would the word be? You not really usurpation the the case of of. Um, Hong Kong, of course, is that it was handed over peacefully from, uh, let's say, part of the British Empire to back to China as it was originally leased. But you'll you'll fill us more on on those details later. So there there are important differences, but there's also similarity in the sense that China's hope towards Taiwan was to be able to say, to an extent, well, look, we have a we have a one China two system. A policy in place, and it's worked wonders for Hong Kong. So why wouldn't you want to have the same kind of um, privileged uh, um, privileged position as Hong Kong does? But of course, um, to Taiwanese observers, things may not be as rosy as China seems to think they are for Hong Kong, especially with the troubling developments, uh, not least of which stemming from Um, China's uh, breakdown of protests in Hong Kong. This was uh, already some years ago now. um, And things have steadily decreased ever since for for democracy and and the way of life in in Hong Kong, haven't they, George?
1: The full history. Hong Kong is a harbour, island, peninsula That that was a part of China forever until 1839, during the First Opium War. Uh, This was a war that Britain and various European powers fought against China and won. Britain took Hong Kong under a 99-year lease, uh, formally surrendering the, the island on a temporary basis. The Portuguese also took another... Uh, of area nearby called Macau. In 1997, the British uh, lease for the for Hong Kong was at its end. But Hong Kong by then had gotten used to being a part of Britain, and including such nice things as elections and some freedoms that don't exist in Mainland China due to it being ruled by the Communist Party. So, in order to honor the lease. Not annoy the Chinese government, and, in theory, keep the people of Hong Kong happy. They came up with the idea of the one China two systems. Basically, the principle of it would be that the Chinese mainland would keep its own government and keep its own laws. However, Hong Kong would also enjoy its own laws and its own rules, and would enjoy a quote "high degree of autonomy for at least 50 years. This didn't really happen. In the 2010s, in various waves, the Chinese authorities got more and more involved within the Hong Kong system, put their own people in charge, which was met by waves of protest by many of the citizenry of Hong Kong, which the authorities repeatedly crushed the and that's about where we are the pro democracy demonstrators still from time to time head out they still try to make their voices known but in the main hong kong is virtually on the same level as the rest of china it's it has some formal different structures some formal different institutions but the candidates are all chosen by the chinese government the rules are all written by the Chinese government, and the enforcement mechanisms are dictated by the Chinese government. So right. at this point, there's, there's function, it's functionally just a part of China.
0: And certainly the people of Hong Kong, who, as you say, will still have memories, many, many of them, of being part of, of the British Empire or Commonwealth or the, uh, the let's say, the Anglosphere, more generally speaking, um, will remember these rights that they retained and this community they belong to and the wider world they were exposed to. Um, perhaps why be just before the, the pandemic, um, Hong Kong was topping international news headlines because there were, there were massive protests at just what you've mentioned before, at the increasing presence and, and domination that China tried to, um, aggressively exert and increasingly exert over the Hong Kong people, their lifestyle, the government, their democracy, their rights, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, the pandemic seems to have displaced uh, the concern, the international outcry and concern over the, the, the fate of Hong Kong. But uh, am I cynic? And this episode here is, of course, to remind listeners uh, that these problems are still very much ongoing, even if they're not dominating the news cycle as much as they used to.
1: I have some personal connections to the the situation there. I have friends who've been involved in the protest movement. So it is something that is on my mind on a regular basis, wondering whether they're going to be okay throughout all of this. Uh, The pandemic really ratcheted up a lot of trends going on in China. China increasingly was becoming authoritarian and then with the pandemic it now had this perfect excuse however valid it was still an excuse to crack down even harder and it cracked down not only on the mainland across the country itself but also in Hong Kong which saw very very strict lockdown measures that most of the rest of the world would probably see as unjust if it was put on then.
0: Draconian almost, wouldn't you say? In Hong Kong, correct me if I'm mistaken, that currently, they still have a three plus four rule in effect for international arrivals to Hong Kong. And this would include Hong Kong people returning to, to the country from, from whatever destination they're coming from. And this means that the day of arrival counted, is actually counted as day zero if I'm not mistaken, the following three days have to be booked at a hotel, a designated hotel in which you have to do Rapid antigen testing every single day, and then the next four days are at a chosen your chosen domicile, but it's um, a, it has to be supervised in some way. I'm not sure what the specifics are, but it's essentially a week of close monitoring, uh, staying in a hotel. Um, it almost reminds you of the worst days of of the pandemic back in 2020, and it seems China um, and and the Chinese communists regime in power that is imposing these draconian measures, um, you know, despite the fact that um, by almost every metric, things are, um, it's night and day compared to what we saw in 2020 when the pandemic has just begun. Now the world has largely moved on. Uh, You know, we've got uh, vaccine programs uh, internationally, and, um, and especially a city like Hong Kong, um, one would imagine should be able to have a, um, an efficient vaccination program, and would be able to relax its laws, which also allow greater movement of people, of goods, and the economy. In fact, um, Hong Kong used to have one of the busiest airports in the world. Now it, they've almost emptied it because of these draconian measures and the lack of people coming in. In fact, it's the other way around: is people going leaving Hong Kong. Um, it, it, Hong Kong has, in fact, recorded its sharpest annual drop in population, um, and this is a, a population fall from 7.41 million to 7.29 million, a 1.6% decrease uh, this year alone.
1: The big it is the biggest fall in population in the area in at least six decades, and it's the third consecutive year of declining population now in the the region. Yeah. Uh, in 2020, when the lock when COVID-19 came out, many many governments quickly reacted and put down strict lockdowns and you know restrictions to make sure that people would not be getting infected. Because, as I like to say, often we were at that point the Native Americans uh, with a new disease coming out, and during the Columbian Exchange. were killed by disease. So it could have been serious. China at the time maintained an idea that called uh, zero COVID. They came out of the idea that nobody in the country is going to get COVID whatsoever, and the government's going to put all its resources towards that cause. In 2020, probably not that bad an idea, but diseases over time tend to get less deadly. Not just because of human activity like medicine and vaccines, both of which have been pioneered and are effective at what they're seeking out to do. Now, if you get COVID-19 now, you have a much better chance of surviving than you would have if you have gotten it in 2020, but also because of evolu- the evolution of diseases in general. Dead hosts don't spread diseases. So over time, most diseases trend towards becoming less severe. COVID and COVID nineteen was no exception. However, the the Chinese government has really been an exception because while other governments have generally come to the realization that we can handle COVID nineteen now, we can we can treat it, we can medicate it, we have vaccines and Many countries made it their prestige program that they would come up with the first vaccine against the disease. And so they eased their lockdowns, their restrictions on human life in general around this disease. China hasn't. And China may, keeps on maintaining its zero COVID policy. And in fact, by some metrics, it has gotten more in few. Enthusiastic, more strict, more invasive, almost, with enforcing these rules, and Hong Kong is no exception. Well, and it's it's as you
0: say, you know, it's not only just um, a public health concern at this point, but it is a political and human rights concern because, indubitably, the Chinese uh, government of mainland China has has used COVID as a pretense to push other agendas and. It seems to have worked perfectly in the sense that it's it was just a, a perfect storm by which they were able to push this policy agenda of integrating Hong Kong increasingly and, and more aggressively. Um, the national security law comes into mind, which was took into put was put into effect um, uh, shortly before the pandemic, but really came into motion as we're speaking. Um, about 200 people have been arrested by this this national security law alone in Hong Kong. And this includes mostly pro-democracy protesters, lawmakers, uh, and the uh, like—young people who who wanted, uh, who see Hong Hong Kong as their home and want to protect the rights and freedoms they once had. This is concerning on on many levels, and uh, it's not just me saying it. It's the statistics saying that people are leaving Hong Kong, and uh, these draconian laws over COVID nineteen just hide the pretense of of them seeing a Hong Kong that they may no longer recognize or that is going in a direction that is hostile to, to those that they were raised in. In a way, it's like watching a city dying. Would you agree with that, George?
1: Well, of course. And it's a city dying in part because as he said, people are leaving and they're leaving because of laws that are hostile. The draconian you know, security laws, as he mentioned, have, very conveniently been targeting pro-democracy activists, pro-democracy uh, security officials, and being brutal on them. In June 2020, Britain introduced a basically new immigration and citizenship laws to make it easier for Hong Kongers to come to the UK. Uh, the rules became that if you were a resident of Hong Kong before 1997, you would automatically be eligible to British citizenship. And a lot of people took it up. By July of 2020, over 120,000 Hong Kongers who were eligible for this citizenship applied for it, which would allow them to live and work in the UK. And we have every reason and evidence to show that a great many people took it. And if they weren't going there, they were going to many other countries. Australia, Portugal, and Canada are being cited as top destinations in the article that I am viewing right now. It's, It's an attractive prospect. If you have a citizenship or an overseas status that allows you to go to a country that looks pretty solidly democratic, looks like it's not going to go full 1984 on you, that's a pretty good reason to go move and live in that country, especially if you speak the language already, which a large number of people in Hong Kong do, because British Empire, English language, it's an attractive prospect. Why stay in a city which looks like it's going to get worse over time, when you can just leave for greener pastures?
0: Indeed, and and it's not uh, you know, and I would make the argument it's not simply fleeing to greener pastures and of you know this faraway continent, but rather it's in a way something very familiar to them because Hong Kong for a long time was part of the British um, Empire, British Commonwealth, and um, there was a lot of cultural interchange both ways um, between the wider British community and uh, between Hong Kong and Chinese influences there. Aint so. In a way they're coming already knowing what to expect and already understanding most if not all of the facets of british life um and 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 hopefully that will make their transition um you know difficult as it might be for all other factors financially family-wise etc that much smoother because they are coming in a way to to you know somewhere that might even seem in in the most fundamental of ways more homely and more more similar to to their values than Hong Kong is now, and so it's a bizarre state of affairs in which it, you know if you choose to stay in Hong Kong, it's no longer and may never be again the Hong Kong that you grew up in. Whereas if you emigrate to the United Kingdom, you might find okay, uh, you know society functions in a way that's actually closer to to what I grew up with, and you know that makes me think as well. Is Hong Kong, in a way, can we draw parallels to Ukraine and the situation that's happening there in the sense that they are fighting for democracy? Of course, not in open warfare, I understand that, but um, through different means, they're being political, they're being legal uh, types of fights. Um, they are fleeing en masse uh, to countries that they might be accepted, such as the United Kingdom, where they can live in freedom. Uh, and in democracy and of course it has the sympathy of the west if not uh, most of the world i would imagine um the, the plight of people in hong kong so do you think in a way that hong kong has become the ukraine of of asia of
1: china i'd hesitate to say that mostly because taiwan uh exists as we have discussed in a previous episode check it out uh, and Taiwan's parallels with Ukraine are much closer than the Hong Kong situation. Taiwan is a, an island that looks like it could be beset by an invasion. Uh, you don't get much closer than that. Don't forget that Hong Kong was handed over. It was given to China after the end of the lease, which that's why the two systems idea came from in the first place. You don't get ideas of two systems and agreements that you have separate, different ideas, but all coexist in the midst of a military invasion. There are, however, other things that I want to point out that aren't just the freedom and democracy uh, issues, which are very important. But in a way, the population decline matches other factors of life that make it, make life difficult in Hong Kong, namely cost of living. So I've got a cost of living comparison up between London and Hong Kong. London, a place famous with having its own problems with cost of living. You ready for some of the uh, the comparisons? Shoot them. Local purchasing power in Hong Kong is 15.257% lower than in London, uh, based off an average rate wage. So if you get a wage in Hong Kong, and you get a comparable wage in London, you're going, you know, you're fifteen. You'll have fifteen percent more spare cash, if you will, in London than you would in Hong Kong. Groceries prices in Hong Kong forty four percent higher than in London. Rent prices eight point six percent higher than in London. And consumer uh, prices, including rent, so everything put together, 2% higher than in London. London already is a city that during the pandemic saw some population decline and emigration due to the very, very high cost of living. The fact that when you have a normal salary, you can't afford a lot of basic necessities in the city and yet as I'm seeing from the figures it's even higher it's even more dramatic in hong kong
0: and of course london is seen as the golden standard of an expensive place to live if not one of the most expensive and traditional speaking yeah. has always been one of the most expensive cities to live in and you know but with all the stats that you've mentioned it seems that hong kong is topping uh, London in as far as the, the, how expensive it is to live there.
1: It does. For, for the sake of completion, there are, of course, a handful of things that Hong Kong is cheaper at. Uh, restaurant prices take my attention, which is seven five percent lower uh, than in London. But for most things, and most notably rent, Hong Kong is much more expensive than London. In fact, Hong Kong is a city that has had every once in a while you see stories of people paying rent in for what we would in the West would think of as absurdly small spaces, you know, single bed size areas and pay a rent you would compare to an apartment in the UK in order to live in
0: that. And it's not exactly a great slogan for Hong Kong, hey, come live in Hong Kong, where you're gonna pay more than London to also not have a political voice or a vote and have mainland Chinese Communist Party dictate uh, increasingly every aspect of your life. Um, it's not exactly as appealing as it may have been in the 80s or the early 90s, in which it was a you know a center of the world uh, financially and uh,
1: culturally and in so many other ways. Or even now in the 2000s. Sorry for the interruption. Even yeah. in the 2000s under the one China two systems, yes, it wasn't perfect, but Hong Kong was still a thriving hub with that was a world leader in many financial sectors. It was uh, quite well known in gambling. You know, it was a place where things were happening and so you could argue was worth the cost of living there. Nowadays, though, a lot of these industries are restricted or outright suffering because of these incredibly harsh lockdowns that are continuing to be enforced in the city. And this is on top of all the freedoms and the rights that Hong Kong had uh, enjoyed, had the privilege of enjoying as a result of the agreement between Britain and China in the handover. And now those things are just not there anymore. And instead are often replaced by regular, I wouldn't say street battles, but street confrontations, street clashes between protesters and the police. That doesn't make a city worth, no, a very appealing place to live. That doesn't make it, that does change the calculus of what, how much is rent worth in a location.
0: I agree yeah. with you completely, George, and I, I see it the way you do and the way I, I would assume most people do and most of our listeners as well. But the Chinese government doesn't see it that way, uh, or at least they don't want to be seen as seeing it that way because, um, and this is a this is a good one, the, a new billboards have come up, for example, in Australia, in the cities of Sydney and Melbourne, celebrating the 25th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong. But you won't hear any mention of street battles, political dissidents, political crackdown, um, depopulation, um, how I missed anything else. Uh, no, it is, and the billboard uh, in sort of large letters a new era, stability, prosperity, opportunity. And in, in big uh, numbers, 25, celebrating the 25th anniversary of its return, its over to China, and it's almost a slap to the face, really, because it, I don't know who in Australia would necessarily buy it, uh, in the sense that the world is well aware of just how bad things have got in Hong Kong, just how desperate the situation is, just how heartbroken people in Hong Kong are to see the rights and freedoms and way of life slowly wither away and of course we see it in all the stats and figures that we're listing today but if you are to believe this billboard which really should pass as propaganda and in fact i think the the news article that came out is is that there there's a can there is a backlash in australia for people that um uh, that want to see the billboard taken down precisely because of this um the chinese government is using it as an opportunity to attract um, you know, foreign workers or foreign investments or uh, people to move back into Hong Kong as it is depopulating. Um, but they won't mention any of the reality on the ground, just this bogus vision of everything is great, never been better in Hong Kong, now that it's returned to its, its rightful owner. Um, it's a bit of a slap to the face, but uh, how do you
1: see it, George? Ironically, I think that Billboard is right on one thing. It very much is a new era, but i'm not sure whether it's an air, a new era quite as rosy as they're painting it out to be
0: i don't know who would look at that billboard and uh, and and believe the story but um and it's sad in a way because hong kong as you've said before in the you know in the early 2000s was a, a prime destination and a dream place to to live and to to build your life around and in fact many people in the united kingdom from the us from from the rest of the west as part of a, a professional development um, because it really was integrated with the rest of the world in a way that the rest of China isn't, not even Shanghai. Um, and it's, yeah. it's, it's sad to see how quickly that um, you, this is not the case anymore and how it's withered away and how the Chinese government seems undeterred by this. Uh, if the billboard serves any purpose, it's to remind the world that the Chinese government does not see any of their actions and what they're doing in Hong Kong as any kind of problem, and 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 I and you know it might go back to a mindset problem, in which they really don't think that taking away democratic freedoms and rights are a problem. Perhaps, Oops. but for the Chinese Communist Party, it's it's the best thing they could possibly do to the people of Hong Kong. Um, and so, how do you you know? How do you protest against that?
1: The Chinese authorities, of course, see it as a security matter. Hong Kong is still, at the end of the day, a city within China. And a lot of the, the very things that we're protesting about, that we're arguing are bad, are essentially laws and rules that apply to the rest of the country. And the perspective that they argue, and that I've seen argued by no, the supporters of the Chinese government in this is basically to say that Hong Kong you know has this special had these special rules you know to in and these special privileges due to colonialism and now China is just enforcing the rules that apply within the its entire territory within this one city. Why should a a city you know, get special privileges and special exemptions from laws against the re- that the rest of the people should follow just because a long time ago there was a colonial empire there. So, and that's an argument that I can be sympathetic to sometimes. Uh, I am a fan of the idea that, you know, a, a rule, a law that applies, you know, in a country should apply in all of the country. But at the same time, the question then becomes which rules are being applied. And as we've been discussing with things like the security laws and with the lockdowns, it's tending towards rules that heavily suppress people, very heavily restrict the freedoms and rights that your average person enjoys.
0: Yes. And it's also a matter of of who's the one that gets to make the rule. Because the, the agreement and the understanding was that Hong Kong would be handed over to China as the lease was expiring, but that it would retain its fundamental way of life that the Hong Kongians made clear, and uh, time and time again, that they want to maintain because um, this is their culture. This is uh, organically the way that Hong Kong has functioned. And China, has used COVID-19 as a pretense to take that away and to no longer honour its previous commitments to um, the one China, two systems policy. Uh, This is concerning on many different levels, but making the comparison to Taiwan, where, for example, uh, a white paper, the first one that the Chinese government has released in, I believe, about 20 years uh, concerning the fate of Taiwan, in which they again promise that they would respect this one-China two-policy two-systems policy, were uh, they um, to reunify uh, Taiwan. Although, of course, Taiwan would be looking at all the recent developments, not only in Taiwan but also in Hong Kong, thinking, uh, "Yeah, right. You, you know, this is nothing but phony." Um, because if China's saying one thing but doing another in Hong Kong, then it's just logical to assume that, of course, it was going to be the same thing in Taiwan. And I think it really goes down to a difference in in mindset, as I was explaining earlier, in which um, China seeks only to give uh, platitudes. Mainland China wants only to release platitudes to Taipei and to Hong Kong and to reassuring them, don't worry, everything will be the same. But of course, we'll not uphold that because it really believes that uh, communism is the superior system and that things should be centrally planned and that one leader, Xi Jinping in this case, uh, or the Communist Party, more broadly speaking, are the ones who get to decide rules for the common good. And of course, they are the best ones and the wisest ones to decide so. And when you have places like Taiwan and Hong Kong that think, well, we don't agree with that, we want our own way of life and we want to protect our own freedoms, um, then ultimately China has shown that it is not willing to play ball and that when push comes to shove, it will be the one with the last word. I, I
1: could I could hear through the through the internet the screams of somebody who takes communism, you know, very seriously and has that as their ideology and has read all of Karl Marx's books, screaming in agony when you said that the Chinese uh, Communist Party actually believes in all of the tenets of. Communism. Uh, However, I would say that from their point of view, it's part of a wider pattern. It's in many ways a security question. Ultimately, it's we shouldn't forget that in the 1830s, the Chinese did not lose Hong Kong willingly. They lost it as a result of losing in a war against an entire coalition. Of European and Asian powers fighting against them, and this, and uh, it's why they call they even call the begin now the end of the Opium War, the beginning of the Century of Humiliation. This is what this period is known as in China, the Century, and no one in Beijing wants to see you know, in their minds wants to see a repeat of a Century of Humiliation. And so they have been very much you know being ex- expansive being aggressive claiming if you will what they would see as their rightful share of the world's pie that's why they've been enforcing their rules more and more in hong kong it's why they've been enforcing their rule more and more in the country's far west in xinjiang and in tibet it's why they've been staking out their claims more and more for Taiwan and also for the, the tiny rocks in the middle of the South China Sea. It's partially why they've been expanding their military and taking great care and attention to get all the latest, greatest weapons that they can. And Hong Kong fits into that picture. If You can almost have the thought of if China you know, makes a concession in Hong Kong, if they give up on having full control over this one city that's a part of their you know, their country, then it raises the question of what else will they give up on? And if your idea is to not give up on any of them, then you can't give up on Hong Kong either.
0: And I think that there's a parallel to be drawn, and again with, you know, with, with Ukraine, um, and, and lumping together Taiwan over this because it, it's a point that I raised um, and that you did as well with Yosef when we were speaking about Dr. Yosef Rabina when we were speaking about uh, Ukraine and the question. Another that, great episode. <laughs> another great episode for for us for the listeners uh, today. But um, you know, I raised the point of well, is it not at this point fighting over rubble because? whatever Russia expected would happen out of this invasion, ultimately, even if it does succeed, whatever that might look like, it will succeed over uh, what used to be the industrial heartland of Ukraine, uh, which has now been, to a large extent, reduced to, to rubble. People have fled; uh, Those who remain might be partisans and might impede every effort that comes from Moscow to, to rule the region. and. Likewise, I think what the Chinese Communist Party um, had sought in Hong Kong, what made it prosperous and attractive to begin with for not just the people in Hong Kong, but all over the world that attracted finance and capital and industry. And in the case of Hong Kong, a major port for exports, all of these things require a a blooming interchange and exchange of, of ideas and peoples and which flourishes only in a democracy. Um, And now I think what the Chinese Communist Party is finding is that, okay, you've got the prize that you've sought for so long, you know, you've retaken this this Hong Kong after a century of humiliation, but sadly people are now leaving Hong Kong. And if this continues, which by all accounts is looking likely to do, uh, Hong Kong's stature in the world What it is able to accomplish what it is able to to bring to humanity uh i'm sad to say uh will definitely not be the same as if um the the chinese regime would would have just taken their hands off hong kong and let them rule themselves uh, and continue doing what they know works but instead um and i'm not going i'm not going to say hong kong will be reduced to rubble because that will, will hopefully not be the case but nevertheless, there's a lot. There's a cost of opportunity there. There's a loss of opportunity because the alternative, which wasn't a far-fetched thing, it was what the world expected China would do, which is maintain its end of the bargain of allowing Hong Kong's the freedoms that it, it only recently had, and that would would guarantee that Hong Kong would continue to be a flourishing international a hub of finance and exports and culture and arts. And instead, what they're finding uh, is that the heavy handedness will only result in Hong Kong uh, losing losing its place as a jewel in the world. Yes. And, and I would argue the same thing would go to Taiwan. Even if China were to succeed in this invasion of Taiwan, it would not only be an incredibly high cost in in lives, and in, you know, in military munitions and all the rest of, of that, but also in in Taipei, which is another shining jewel of a city, which flourishes in a democracy, which is an international hub of finance and technology. In the case of Taipei, um, again, would that would the factor still be there under a heavy-handed Chinese uh, regime, or would it be more again a case of depopulation and people seeking? Um, to maintain their quality of life by emigrating abroad.
1: History's be, history has seen this sort of scenario happen many times before. And the pattern is pretty clear. Most leaders prefer to be undisputed king of the ashes over the limited co-regent of a shining jewel on a city. The, at the end of the day, though it would be an exaggeration to say that Hong Kong is going to be just reduced to some uninhabited rubble. It will certainly remain a city and probably remain a wealthy city of great stature. But it is, as you say, it's the opportunity cost, what was lost, what could have been. That's for the rest of us to ponder about and to to mourn.
0: Concluding thoughts on the future of Hong Kong, George?
1: Those were my concluding thoughts. (laughs) Ultimately, the the, the cost-benefit analysis from Beijing is going to be that it is better to be in control of everything as mediocre hubs versus having limited control over incredibly wealthy and incredibly prosperous regions. It's fits into a wider pattern of as I said security you know, directives security uh, goals that they're pursuing that involve if you will expansion
0: yeah well my thoughts on it are similar to yours George. I think also another factor to consider is as the the as Hong Kong is increasingly come under the heavy-handedness of the Chinese um, uh, Communist Party. Uh, I think the part of what made it so attractive to international uh, investors, uh, to the international finance, to international companies, is going to diminish alongside uh, those same freedoms and rights and and culture that the Hong Kongians enjoyed. And with that, I think will come a loss of stature in, in the role that it plays in international finance and affairs. Um, I also think it might, unfortunately, provoke a more inwardness towards Hong Kong as they recoil from what is happening all around them. And as they understandably try to either pretend this is not happening or cope as best as they can with this new reality, we might see some art movements develop. We might see, um, again, some looking at uh, native forms of expression like local music Uh, and food and such as the Hong Kongians try to to retain the the little that they can. Um, But sadly, I think uh, in as far as international uh, security goes, I think there will be less trust placed on Hong Kong institutions from the West. I think there will be less cooperation on a governmental level. Uh, I think there might be more restrictions from Western governments as to uh, what level of, of technology and intelligence uh, can be shared with Hong Kong counterparts, and putting all of this together, sadly, I think that increasingly we will see less liaison between the West and its Hong Kong counterparts and um, and a growing shift between us, um, even if it's um, not what either of us wanted
1: The ironic part thing about all of this is that Chinese the Chinese argument is that it is ultimately just enforcing the laws on Hong Kong that it enforces upon the rest of China. And all of the drawbacks we've been discussing happen to apply onto the mainland too. And with that, those are my thoughts.
0: No, yes, you're exactly right, George. And of course, what I've just mentioned not only goes towards Hong Kong, I mentioned Hong Kong because it was in a way that the most connected of the the Chinese uh, cities to the West in in a plethora of ways. But what I've, you know, my concluding thoughts also extend to uh, Beijing, Shanghai, and, and the rest of China, and uh, that we are witnessing um, a decade in which we are growing apart from the Chinese sphere to the Western sphere, and Hong Kong sadly will be dragged into that Chinese sphere, uh, kicking and screaming, as it were, and uh, a new era of competition or multipolarity, if you wish to call it that, um, and a growing um, divide of, of our values as well and with that those are my concluding thoughts thank you so much george uh, for joining me uh, in this chat i am your co-host thomas Rancasso, and it's been great to do this podcast with you today
1: and i have of course been george shaft and uh with that goodbye and
0: that wraps up this week's cynical talk episode if you've enjoyed this episode we'd really appreciate it if you could share this with your family and friends if you haven't let us know why on our website at www.micynic.com or over at Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, and more. You can find us over at Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you find your podcasts. This is your co-host, Thomas Boncasso, and I hope you'll be joining us next week for our next episode of Cynical Talk. Until then, take care, stay safe, and stay cynical.